Uh, so let's hear God's word from Colossians 2, beginning verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world or the elements of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Now chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Skipping down to verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father. Thank you for the reality that we have in union with Jesus Christ, that we are raised with Him, seated with Him, put to death with Him, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Help us to understand these things better today, to walk by faith, to understand the true power that you have given to us in your Son and by your Spirit. And we ask in in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So the GPS said, go this way and you'll save 10 minutes. And I went that way, and what is it, 20 20 minutes later, 25 minutes late, okay? So my GPS led me astray in trying to get up here to be with you on time this morning. Now, that's kind of what was happening at Colossae. In chapter 2, Paul is addressing something that these Christians thought, take this detour, and it's some form of Judaism. It may just be straight-up Judaism, right? you got references to, the, to uh, the law being put to death. You've got references to the Sabbath. you got references to circumcision. you got references to the Sabbaths. You have references to the new moons, right? Take this detour, and you'll really connect to God. You'll really know what it means to have a full relationship with Him. No, 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 no. That way will get you lost. It won't just make you late. It will take you down the wrong path. And most importantly, even though it seems to give an appearance of being a moral, godly person, it has no power to restrain the flesh. It has no power to deal with your immorality, to deal with your your, uh, discord and... Out of, out of accord relationships. It has no power to give you real genuine love for other people. The law can't take you and seat you in heavenly places in you, the way Israel's Messiah can. And that's what you and I need to understand today, is that in union with Jesus Christ, you are a completely different person. 
Oh, you may look outwardly a certain way, and you may look like every other non-Christian that you spend time with during the week, but as a Christian, as one who has faith in Christ, as one who has been born again, you have been put to death, you have been raised, you are seated. What you heard from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Your footstool is not only true of Israel's Messiah, but of all of his people throughout all time, throughout all the world. And Paul's point is, is because you are different, because you are new, you have to live in this new way. You have to become more and more what you are in Christ. So as we look at this passage here in Colossians 3, we're just looking at the first paragraph. We could break it down into present reality in Christ, present duty in union with Christ, and future glory at the revelation of Christ. So first of all, the present reality. What is the present reality? Well, look at it here. You've been raised with Christ, verse 1. You have died with Christ, verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ, verse 3b. You know, August 31st, 1996 was a very important day for me. It may have just been a typical Saturday for you. But for me, it was the day that I came into union with Sally Rose. And her life changed and my life changed. Her name changed from Rose to Nolder. And she and I both could contemplate a union with any other Christian before then, but then after that, everything was different. And Paul is saying the same thing has happened to these Colossian believers. And in a sense, what doesn't really matter is whether that happened for you in 1996, or for me, I came to faith in 1986 or 1956. The really important date is A.D. 30. The really important date is A.D. 30. Because within a year either way, that was the year that Christ was crucified, He died, He was buried, and He rose again and is seated at the right hand. And what the Bible teaches is that what happened to Christ happened not merely on behalf of His people, right? Christ died for us. He was raised for our justification. But what happened to Christ happens to His people because of their union with Him. The Messiah does not merely represent His people, bearing their punishment, bringing them a righteousness that they do not naturally have. He incorporates His people. He incorporates His people. You know, you could put it as simple as like this. uh, The way the king goes, the kingdom goes. Okay? That's why the book of Kings is not focused on individual Israelites, even though they're all engaged in idolatry, but it's focused on the kings. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. That's because the Messiah, our Savior, is Adamic. He's Adamic. That's a fancy word that means having to do with Adam. God put Adam into the garden in such a way that his decision to obey or disobey would not only affect himself, but would affect every person generated from him. 
He is our federal head. The old New England primer put it this way. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so he determined our destiny, if you will. As we all know, he sinned. He chose the path of rebellion. And in a sense, we all followed him. Not simply because we wanted to, but in a sense, because we had to. And if you don't think that's fair, well, all I can say is, that's what God says happened. Now, our merciful God said that he, but he, he was not going to allow Satan to win. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam became a living being, referring to Genesis 2. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the last Adam who comes to undo and complete the work of the first Adam. And so what Paul says is that just as Adam's transgression plunged us into sin and to death and to slavery, Jesus' obedience, his death on the cross, his being raised as a reward for that obedience, are now ours. Just as our union with Adam led us into sin and death, our union with Christ leads us into righteousness and holiness and life. Another way to say this is, is that Christ's death and resurrection do not simply pay the penalty for sin. It comes to break the power of sin. Christ's resurrection is not simply for our justification, though it certainly is, Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. But it was also very much for our sanctification, our being able to die to sin and more and more to live for righteousness. In other words, Christ's work is not simply to give us life in heaven someday, but it is to give us the life of heaven today, right now, and tomorrow, and the day after. Paul points specifically to death in verse 3. You have died... And to resurrection in verse 1, you have been raised. Now, is he talking something about physical? No, of course not, right? That is yet to come. That's what, this does not, what he says here in Ephesians and in Colossians and elsewhere, Romans 6, does not challenge what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? That as Christ was raised from the dead physically, we too shall be raised physically, But what he's saying is, is that because Christ has been raised, his resurrection power flows now into our inner person, into what the Bible calls our our souls, our spirits, or even in some, some passages, our minds, our hearts. And then he goes on to say that your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm not sure exactly what to make out about that language, but what I think what he's trying to say is that even though outwardly you may look exactly the same, no matter when you came to faith, whether you were baptized here and raised here as a child, or you came to faith later on like myself in college or even older, you know, physically you may look exactly the same, but in the secret part of you that I can't see, you are radically radically different. 
nothing less than death and resurrection, nothing less than being crucified with Christ and being raised in and with Christ. So that even though it's something that we can't outwardly see with, the, with our physical eyes, to the eye of faith, it is real, it is true, it is genuine, and it has implications for every area of your life. And what's important for us to realize is that this is something that is true, not simply when we are assembled here, or not simply when you're having your quiet time, or when you're at a Bible study. You know, you have been raised is a reality that's as true for my marriage, August 31st, 1996. I'm not simply Sally's husband when I'm with her in her presence. I'm Sally's husband here, 30 miles away from her, or if I'm over in China on a recruiting trip trying to recruit international students for a, a school, okay, I am always her husband, and I always have obligations to her because of that union that I have with her. The great Dutch scholar put it like this, Herman Ritterboss, being in Christ, crucified, dead, raised, seated in heaven, obviously does not have the sense of a communion that becomes reality only in certain sublime moments, but rather of an abiding reality determinative of the whole of the Christian life, to which appeal can be made at all times in all sorts of connections and with respect to the whole church without distinction. We have to do here with the church's objective state of salvation. It's not for the particularly spiritual Christians. It's not for the particularly well-off Christians. This is true for all of God's people. And what's so interesting is, is that this, this, um, these verbs here in chapter 3, Paul had already used them back in chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God. You see, something that's true of every Christian, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, is that you are baptized. And that is the objective reality where God says these things are true of you. You are united to Jesus. You have been crucified with him. You have been buried with him. You are raised with him. You see, the way, I, the way I like to think about baptism is all these, these generic promises of God, right? He who believes in the Son has life. Um, uh, you're raised with Him. You're crucified with Him. Baptism is what takes it and individualizes it and says it's, it's true of Dave and it's true of Mark and it's true of Joseph and it's true of Christopher and it's true of Tom and it's true of me and it's true of you, okay? All these general promises... Because you are baptized, you can claim these as reality for yourself. They are meant to strengthen you in your faith. Just like my wife gave me a wedding ring on August 31st, 1996. And it's not so much about my commitment to her, but it's about her commitment to me. It's about the fact that she gave me this ring as a, as a sign and pledge that she would be a faithful wife. Now, unlike the wedding ring, this alone doesn't give me power uh, to respond 
as I should. Okay? It's simply the words of a person. But your baptism is God's powerful pledge to you about the reality of what it means to be united to Christ. Now, Paul's basic argument here is that because you are incorporated into Christ, you have not merely a a new standing with God, but a new status with God, and therefore you must live in accordance with it. Since you have been crucified with Christ, you must put to death sin. Since you have been raised with Christ, you must set your mind on things above and seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, we have to have a little grammar lesson here, okay? Some of you elementary kids might know what we're talking about here. Bible scholars often talk about Paul having an indicative, imperative structure, okay? What's an indicative? Well, indicative is a statement, right? Uh, This is made of, well, is it real wood? I don't know what it's made of. Exactly, okay, but it's solid, okay? This is solid. This is brown, okay? The imperative is a command, okay? Stand behind the pulpit, okay? Stand next to the pulpit. Don't, don't break the pulpit, okay? And that's the way Paul's letters work. Because you have been raised with Christ, because you have been crucified with Christ, because it's a reality that is already true by virtue of what Christ has done and by virtue of the Spirit joining you to Christ through faith, you are to be a different person, In other words, the Christian life is not about becoming becoming something that you're not. The Christian life is about more and more becoming exactly what you are. Crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And you know, this is why we speak of the Christian life as evangelical obedience, It's not an obedience in which you're trying to earn something that you don't have. It's rather living out through the gospel what you've already been given. Okay, You're not not saved by your good works, but you are saved for your good works. You are created in Christ Jesus for a transformed life. Again, in chapter 2, Paul is saying that these regulations, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, all these things that the ceremonial law said not to do, gives you no power to really live the way God calls you to. Yes, the law tells you how to live a pleasing life. Understood that the ceremonial law has been abrogated, but that the moral law abides But you can't find any power. In fact, Paul says that all that the law does is kind of excite sin. And and, um, and it stirs up sin and it gives you the knowledge of sin. But you must look to Christ himself, to Israel's Messiah, to the one who is the fulfillment of law, right? He's the goal and the end of the law, according to Romans chapter 2. In fact, in in uh, Romans chapter 10, excuse me, um, and and actually... um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, these, these, um, these sacrifices, these food sacrifices, Sabbath sacrifices, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the reality belongs to Christ. He is the goal that it was all heading for. And again, Paul's point here is, is, is 
saying that because you can live in this new way in union with Christ, you must, <clears throat> you must live in this new way. I used to use kind of a silly illustration about this, uh, where basically, and of course this was more relevant 15 years ago, I would say, you know, if you can play golf like Tiger Woods, you must play golf, okay? You must play golf, okay? Now, obviously, that's kind of silly because uh, that's not real uh, relevant to life. But the point, or, or think of a musician, you know, if you can play like Beethoven, if you can play like Mozart, you better play, okay? And the point is, no matter what your hobbies are, whatever, whatever your avocations are, because you are united to Christ, because you have power from him, you must live in a new and transformed. It's not an optional thing. It's not a thing like if you decide to take on a second blessing or you decide you want to live the higher Christian life. You know, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You can't get any higher than that. Okay? So therefore, you must put sin to death. You must pursue righteousness. You must live with God. Now, what does it mean to seek the things that are above, or what does it mean to not set your mind on the things that are on the earth here in verse 2? Well, again, he's he's not trying to contrast immaterial things with material things. He's not trying to say, you know, forget about everything you can see with your eyes and just focus on invisible, eternal realities, okay? He's pointing back to what he said in chapter 2, and whatever that is, and again, I think it's some form of Judaism, he's saying that's, that's earthly, okay? It's not really going to get you in touch with the God of heaven, okay? Even the law itself, which is given by God, inspired by God, apart from Christ, is only going to lead you into slavery. <clears throat> But also, you know, this is our Father's world. When you look at what, when Paul says, set your mind on things above, he's talking about everything he's talking about in the rest of chapter 3, where he's talking about marriage, where he's talking about children, where he's talking about work and our relationship with our, with our bosses, with our employers, with our employees. He's talking about the stuff of life. Okay? And he's not saying you just gotta reject all that and, and go live on a hill and just chant all the time, okay? Or hide in a monastery. What he's saying is, is you need to engage in these things not in a worldly, earthly way, but in a way that reflects that you are a transformed person who has come to to, again, not escape the, the stuff of the life, but to engage in it in a godly, holy, proper manner. You know, again, I had a, I had a friend. He's a PCA pastor in um, South Bend, Indiana. He's been there for 25 years now. And he used to preach this sermon, if you are raised with Christ, love your wife. If you are raised with Christ, obey your parents. 
Because everything here at the beginning of chapter 3 is setting us up for what he's going to talk about, this household code, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Right? Wives, submit to your husband. Husband, love your wives. This is the outflowing. And again, that's not about being so focused on the things of heaven that you neglect your spouse or you neglect your children or you neglect your work. But again, you engage in these things with the agenda of heaven, with the life-transforming power of heaven at your disposal. Again, setting your mind on things above does not mean living an isolated life of heavenly contemplation. Remember, the God of heaven is a God of three persons who have lived in a fellowship of of harmony, okay? God is not this unitary monad who wants you to just kind of hang out with him all all by your lonesome, Okay? I mean, think about what, what Paul's going to say here in, uh, in chapter 4. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, you, you can't obey that if you're sitting in a monastery just thinking about God all the time. This is talking about how we conduct ourselves in all of our various earthly vocations, in the home, in the community, in the church, in our work. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's a time of great temptation or simply a time of distress and suffering, you can always say to yourself, I am crucified with Christ. I I don't need to choose the path of sin. In fact, I must not choose the path of sin. I must not choose the path of selfishness. I am raised with Christ. I can choose and I must choose the way of sacrifice. Christ gave himself for me. Christ lived a sacrificial life, died a sacrificial death for me. I can choose and I must choose the sacrificial life that he has given to me. So, present reality in union with Christ, present duty in union with Christ. Let's finally look at our future glory in union with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life, man, think about that, who is your life, you know? What What do you think about when you get up in the morning? You know, Paul is telling us that you know, if, if earthly things, which again, God gives us as good gifts, but if, but if they're consuming our thinking, you know, Christ who is your life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him. That hidden life that you have now is one day going to be made manifest. And you see, the point of this is, is that all of this, you know, when Paul's, let's put it this way. When Paul says, put to death, anger immorality, um, idolatry, all, all these things that break down our relationships with these. When he says, but he, he means it's not easy, okay? Um, I'm trying to treat this wart, and I'm supposed to scrape it off, and it, it ain't easy to hurt yourself, right? But sometimes it's very necessary, okay? If you want to deal with something, if you want to address something, 
You know, if you've got the cancer, you may have to go through the chemo and go through a lot of pain to kill it. Okay? So it's not easy. But Paul's point here is there is a goal, there is a time when all of the the hard work and the self-denial will, in a sense, have a payoff. Okay? Will have a reward. Your life is hidden with Christ, but one day it's going to be revealed in glory when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Titus 2.13, we are awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we can't see him, but he's coming again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. You know, look up that phrase, judge the living and the dead, and see how many times it occurs in the New Testament, okay? That phrase from our creed is is directly taken from many, many different verses. And what Paul is saying is that even though right now you have tremendous spiritual union and communion with Christ, the best is yet to come. There's more to come. You know, we gather together today once a week, okay? And we have... You know, moments when we're at home and with our families, reading our Bibles, and it's wonderful. But we're looking forward to a time when that will be unceasing, unbroken, undivided attention, no distractions, unbroken, forever and ever and ever and ever. Not only will these things be true in our inner man, as they are, most certainly, but they will also be true through and through in our outer man as well. John puts it like this, 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that we, when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Or Paul himself spells this out more fully in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what Paul is saying is, you know, the great truth between what has happened to us and what will happen to us, there's work to do. There's a job to do. You're not just supposed to sit there and and wait for the future to happen. You're guaranteed that it will happen. It's there. It's a rest. There's a Sabbath rest that yet waits the people of God. Hebrews chapter 4. So right now, live as God has called you to. You know, you are literally His his hands, His feet, His mouthpiece, not only for the transformation of you, but for the transformation of this community, of this place where God has placed you, or wherever God sends you. Because there's still a whole world out there 
that, that needs to know Christ, that needs to know the transforming power that happens where He puts families back together and, and sustains them, where he, he blesses us in our work and in our labor to provide for our families and even to provide for those who are in need. And so, brothers and sisters, you're dead in Christ, put sin to death. You're raised with Christ, live for righteousness' sake, knowing that no matter how far we may fall short, no matter how far we may still struggle and need to make progress, we have a glorious future when glory, the glory that is hidden now, will be fully revealed and we will participate in unbroken communion with our God and Savior forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.